Please take your copies of God's Word and turn in them to Matthew chapter 5, Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5. Uh, last week, we included in the bulletin for the first time a word search for children uh, who would like uh, to, in listening to the sermons, identify different words, and uh, our plan is to continue to provide that going forward. We received encouraging response from that uh, initiative last week. One small tweak, though, and that is that I won't be providing treats as a reward because you guys bankrupted me. And me and Miss Jenna don't have a Tootsie Pop line item in our family budget. So, uh, but, so it's on the parents. If you want to make an incentive for your kids, uh, that's fine. And kids, if your parents provide no incentive for you to fill out the word search, uh, greater is your reward in heaven. <laughs> Not actually a joke. But now I hope you've turned to Matthew 5. We're in a series of sermons in Matthew's gospel. And we're sort of in a series within the series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're sort of in a series within the series within the series uh, in the Beatitudes. We come this morning to verse 7, but I'd like us to read it in context by reading verses 1 through 7 together. Let's read. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself as a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You've revealed yourself as a God marked by such abundant mercy. This is an attribute of your character. This is part of your heart toward needy, sinful people. You're a merciful God, full of grace, full of pity, full of compassion. What good news this is for us as sinners who can plead only your mercy. We can come to you not on the grounds of our own merits, not on the grounds of any kind of justice, any kind of standard that we could meet. If we're to have any hope at all, it will be only if you are merciful to us. And so how happy we are that this is how you reveal yourself. We pray this morning that you would teach us mercy from your own heart, from your own word. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. In his literary masterpiece, Les Miserables, Victor Hugo illustrates through a spectacularly moving drama the power of redemption and the ultimate triumph of grace over law. A well-known early scene in the novel captures the essence of the book. The novel's main character is Jean Valjean. Uh, he's introduced to us as a man who has just completed a 19-year prison sentence for stealing a loaf of bread to feed himself and his family. He becomes hardened both by his crime and by the exacting demands that the law imposes on him. And as a result, he cannot see himself as anything other than a criminal and the world around him as anything other than cruel. And after he is released, he finds 
that the penalties of law have branded him as one of society's unredeemables, that he's rendered utterly unable to rebuild his life despite his best efforts, and subsequently he returns to a life of petty crime. This, Valjean reasons, is who he is. One night he's offered shelter in the parish home of a local bishop who shows him surprising and unexpected kindness and grace. The bishop is the first person Valjean encounters in the story who treats him with generosity. But Valjean is a criminal and believes he can be nothing better, and so despite the kindness he has shown, he steals six silver sets of knives and forks in the middle of the night and makes off with them, uh, slipping out and away through the bishop's back garden. The next morning, the bishop discovers the missing silver, but says he has no interest in pursuing Valjean. Nonetheless, the police still apprehend him and bring him back to the church, expecting that the bishop will press charges. But he doesn't do that. Instead, the bishop says that Valjean is his friend, and that he had wanted him to have the silver sets. Of course, Valjean, who is standing there in custody, expecting to be held to the same level of severe justice that he had always been accustomed to, is shocked. The bishop then asks the officers to release Valjean and to return the silver to him. But the bishop doesn't stop there. He tells Valjean that he forgot to take the silver candlesticks also, which, by the way, are far more valuable than the sets of silver, which he wants Valjean to have as well. Hugo writes this, Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. Now, said the bishop, go in peace. By the way, when you return, my friend, it is not necessary to pass through the garden. You can always enter and depart through the street door. It is never fastened with anything but a latch, either by day or by night. Then turning to the police, he said, gentlemen, you may retire. Hugo goes on to write, Jean Valjean was like a man on the point of fainting. The bishop then drew near to him and said in a low voice, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. In the theatrical version of Les Miserables, which many of you perhaps have heard or watched, uh, there's been a, a film portrayal of it, there's been a Broadway production of it. Uh, at this point, Valjean sings a song about how he himself experienced this extraordinary act of mercy. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'll read it. Valjean says, what have I done? Sweet Jesus, what have I done? Become a thief in the night? Become a dog on the run? Have I fallen so far and is the hour so late that nothing remains but the cry of my hate, the cries in the dark that nobody hears, here where I stand at the turning of the years? If there's another way to go, I missed it twenty long years ago. My life was a war that can never be won. They gave me a number and murdered Valjean when they chained me and left me for dead just for stealing a mouthful of bread. Yet why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? 
For I had come to hate the world, this world that always hated me. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. One word from him and I'd be back. Beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? I am reaching, but I fall. And the night is closing in as I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. But I'll escape now from that world. From the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. In this scene... And in the drama that follows it, Hugo masterfully illustrates one of the most profound principles written on the human soul. Mercy changes us. Grace transforms us and makes us better. Forgiveness redeems us and sets us free from the penal demands of the law. Law could never redeem us. Only mercy and grace can do that. Of course, we as Christians know the author of this principle wasn't Victor Hugo, but God Himself. Romans 8.3, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. As the Apostle Peter said, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And brothers and sisters, this mercy is meant to have a transformative effect on us. For all those who truly experience the mercy of God in Christ, it transforms them into merciful people themselves. You recognize this, hopefully as a Christian, the greatest thing we need is mercy to be shown to sinners like us. No hope without mercy. If God did not send forth His Son in love and compassion and grace and mercy, we would have no hope. We need mercy to save us. We need mercy also to change us. It is the mercy of God that softens men's hearts. Jesus, on the hill in Galilee, teaching His disciples in this passage in Matthew 5, assumes all of this. In his statement in Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus is talking about what will mark his people, those who are already the objects of his mercy. They will be merciful themselves. Now, you can misread this passage. And you could think of Jesus as setting forth a bare kind of cause and effect relationship. If you show mercy to others, well, then God will show mercy to you that that would be a misinterpretation. This is not cause and effect. Jesus is not saying, if you are a merciful person, well, then God will decide to show you mercy, but it depends on you first being merciful. It's not at all what he's saying. That would be to deny the gospel itself. The gospel never starts with our initiatives, always and only with God's. And moreover, I'll just observe, the language does not require a cause and effect relationship here. And I would also just note the statement isn't exhaustive. Jesus chooses to speak only 
of the believer's present dispensation of mercy and his future hope of mercy. But he says nothing, he chooses to say nothing about what has occurred in the past. What has occurred in the past for all those who are the Lord's disciples? They have become the recipients, the beneficiaries of God's mercy shown to them in Christ. So Jesus could have chosen to say, and this would be theologically accurate, it would be true of things he said elsewhere, that all those who have been shown mercy by God, they will become merciful themselves and they will obtain mercy on the last day. That would be a more exhaustive statement, but Jesus just leaves out that past information. So this is not cause and effect. What is assumed is that Jesus' disciples are the beneficiaries of such extravagant mercy, and that this mercy will change them and make them merciful themselves, and they will on the last day receive mercy. The experience of the extraordinary mercy of God is meant to condition the way in which they themselves then show mercy to others. And by bearing the fruit of mercy in our lives, we will show ourselves to be those who have, in fact, obtained mercy, and we will have the hope of receiving full and final mercy on that great and final day. Charles Spurgeon says this, what we are to others, God will be to us. Followers of Jesus must be men of mercy, for they have found mercy and mercy has found them. As we look for the mercy of the Lord in that day, we must show mercy in this day. So this is not us earning mercy, but it is us showing mercy as we have been shown mercy, which gives us hope that we will then receive mercy in that day which is to come. So all I want to do now in the time that remains is ask the question, what does this mean, blessed are the merciful? What does it look like to be a merciful man or woman? What does it mean to be truly merciful as a Christian? And I'd like to highlight four aspects of Christian mercy, the mercy that we're meant to show to others. So four headings this morning. We begin with number one. Mercy involves benevolence toward helpless and needy people. Mercy involves benevolence toward helpless and needy people. Mercy shows itself, first of all, in an eagerness to show practical benevolence, generosity, and kindness toward those who are in need. The term used here for mercy is often used in this way in the Bible to refer to practical kindness or benevolence. The word mercy is certainly used to describe God's salvation of His people, but it can also refer to mercy that's shown in terms of practical benevolence to relieve human suffering and deprivation and need to meet material burdens. Uh, This is mercy that rushes forth to meet material, practical, and physical concerns for helpless and needy people, people who are afflicted and oppressed, uh, people who are cast down, people who find themselves in distress. You may know, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, many people appeal to Jesus on precisely this account. They appeal to Him for mercy. So in Matthew 9, verse 27, we read of two blind men who come to Jesus and they cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the mercy they're asking for in the first instance is to have their physical blindness removed. In Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman with a daughter who is demon-possessed comes to Jesus and asks for mercy that her daughter might be healed and the demon be cast out. The same thing occurs in Matthew 17, this time with a father who has a son who is demon-possessed. And again, 
He asked for Jesus to show mercy. In Matthew 20, we have two more blind men who come to Jesus pleading once again for mercy. In other gospel accounts, you have the account of the ten lepers in Luke's gospel who come to Jesus and they ask Him, Son of David, have mercy on us. They want to be healed from their leprosy. They want to experience practical kindness from His hand. These are all helpless and needy people coming to Jesus that He might relieve their physical sorrow and misery. Now, wonderfully, in most of these cases, there is an overabundance of mercy that goes beyond addressing the practical, physical, material issue. Jesus goes beyond healing the blind men and giving them physical sight, and He gives them spiritual sight. He saves them from their sins. He does this in the case of many of those who come, the presenting problem being a physical issue. Well, Jesus heals them of the physical issue, but also in abundant mercy, forgives their sins and saves their souls. But don't miss this. Jesus is not only interested in the spiritual dynamic. Have you ever noticed that in every single instance we have in the gospel accounts, where a person in some kind of physical or material distress comes to Jesus, He always heals them. He always helps them. We don't have a single account of Jesus refusing a poor and needy person who comes to Him for practical aid. Isn't that striking? He never turns away anyone who comes to Him asking for mercy, to heal a child, or to open their eyes, or to cleanse them from leprosy, or to do some kind of practical kindness and good for them. Do you think that that's relevant at all to our own responsibility toward helpless and needy people? And don't say, by the way, well, that's just Jesus. You know, He's the Son of God. He came as the Messiah. He came as the Christ. And of course, one of the prophecies He was to fulfill to show us that He was the Christ was that He would uh, heal diseases and He would give sight to the blind and things like that. So this is like a unique ministry that Jesus has. He's not showing us some kind of example that we're to follow. Okay, that's exactly wrong and incorrect. In numerous places, Jesus indicates that this is a model and an example that He's setting for us. And there's many passages that we can go to to establish that point. Perhaps the most effective passage would be Luke chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 10, it's a familiar passage. What happens in Luke chapter 10, 25 and following, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you know that story? The parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is asked by a lawyer how he can inherit eternal life. And Jesus asked him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But then the man seeking to justify himself asks the Lord, well then who then is my neighbor. He wants to know what love for neighbor is meant to look like. Let me just say as an aside, I'm I'm very well aware that that term love for neighbor and that expectation of our Lord has kind of been co-opted in our day and age, and it's become kind of this junk drawer term for sort of anything you want other people to do, tell them it's love for neighbor, and they'll feel burdened to do it. So love for neighbor means you need to vote for this candidate and not for this candidate. It means you need to, you know, lower your carbon emissions, your carbon footprint or whatever. Uh, and it means that you have to wear a mask in every sort of public setting. Okay, I recognize that's an overreach probably of this command from the Lord Jesus. Nonetheless, we must never forget Jesus did tell us to love our neighbors. It's one of two great commandments that Jesus says, on these commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
which means it's hardly anything that is of greater importance to us than learning how to rightly love our neighbors. And this passage tells us exactly what love for neighbor looks like. The man asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of a man who fell among robbers. He's stripped and beaten and left for dead. You have a priest that passes by, sees the man left there for dead. He just passes by on the other side. You have a Levite who comes down, does the very same thing. But then a Samaritan comes by and sees him and has compassion on him. And what does he do? He binds up his wounds. He cares for him. He even gives money to the innkeeper to look after this man's needs. And then Jesus says to the lawyer in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Do you remember what the lawyer says? He says, the one who showed him mercy. Same word, eleo. It was the man who showed him mercy. That was the one who was the true neighbor to the man. And Jesus responds by saying, you go and do likewise. Friends, this is a picture of mercy in action. One function of mercy is that it rushes forth to help needy people, and this kind of spirit should characterize all those who profess to be followers of Christ. Listen to Spurgeon again. He says this, no merciful man could forget the poor. He who passed by their ills without sympathy and saw their suffering without relieving them might prate as he would about inward grace, but divine grace in his heart there could not be. No, the truly merciful are considerate of those who are poor. A Christian understands that as his Lord and Master sought after that which was wounded, bound up that which was broken, healed that which was sick, and brought again that which was driven away, even so ought all his servants to imitate their Master by looking with the greatest interest after those who are in the saddest plight. Oh, children of God, if ever you are hard-hearted towards any sorrowful person, you are not what you ought to be. You are not like your master. Proverbs 21, 13 says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. I just happened to read this account of Job this week, the book of Job. Job 29, many of you will know the Terrible things that befall Job, uh, Satan in an effort to disrupt his faith and undo him. The Lord allows Satan uh, to bring all kinds of calamities upon Job. And Job is recalling a season in life that was different. In Job 29, he says this, When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. Why all of this? Job's clearly a great man. He comes into the city square, and what happens? The young men hide their faces. They're thinking, we're not worthy to be here. A great man is in our midst. We've got to get out of here. And the old men stand up when Job enters the room. And princes and nobles, they're not going to talk. Job is here. If anyone's going to speak, it will be this great and godly man. Why did he have this reputation? Verse 12, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. 
The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. What a description of a godly, and righteous, and merciful man. Brothers here, we should aspire to follow Job in this. How about Tabitha in Acts 9? Uh, she's also referred to as Dorcas. We don't call her that for obvious reasons. In Acts 9.36, it says that she, Tabitha, was full of good works and acts of charity. She dies, and you know what happens? Tabitha dies. This woman known for benevolence and good works and acts of charity. You know what happens? All the widows come weeping because their great patroness has died. Their great heroine is dead. And who now will plead the cause of we who are poor and destitute and in need. And of course, Peter goes on to heal her and raise her, and there's much rejoicing. Spurgeon said, time was when wherever a man met a Christian, he met a helper. Christians are those who show mercy toward the needy and the afflicted. Friends, if I could speak uh, candidly for a minute. Uh, If you're a member here at Emmanuel, you know me. Hopefully, you know me well. Uh, you know, you've heard enough of my teaching and preaching to know that I'm concerned about the social justice movement. I'm concerned about the incursions of wokeism on American culture and on the evangelical church. Uh, in this very room, I taught a class on critical race theory and cultural Marxism. Uh, I appreciate capitalism and free market economics. You know that about me. But there's a direction you can go with all of that that shuts up your heart to compassion, shuts up your heart to mercy. You read a book like Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, whatever's commendable about that book, and there's much that is, it will not teach you to be a merciful person. It will not teach you to love and care for the needy people around you. But if you comprehend something of the mercy of God shown to you in Christ, as one who is far more poor and far more needy than someone in physical distress, you will become a merciful person. When you comprehend the pit out of which God saved you, and when you comprehend the eternal reward that awaits you, Not on the basis of works done by us in righteousness, but based only on the mercy of God shown to us in Christ, then you will become a merciful person. So we see first that mercy involves benevolence toward helpless and needy people. Now, point number two, the second impulse of mercy. Mercy involves benevolence toward helpless and needy people. Now, two, mercy involves loving forbearance with the sins and failings of others. Loving forbearance with the sins and failings of others. The merciful woman is forbearing toward sinners in her life, meaning she's willing to bear the cost of the sins of others. That's what forbearance is. 
a willingness to bear the cost of the sins of others. She doesn't require payment from them. She doesn't perpetually assert her own rights and her just deserts. When wronged, she doesn't require vindication and penance. When inconvenienced by the failings and sins of others, she doesn't retaliate or complain. Rather, in mercy, she forbears with others. She's long-suffering. She's possessed of the kind of love that Peter tells us covers a multitude of sins. It's covered in love. Think not on it again. She's possessed of the kind of love that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, keeps no record of wrongs, is not resentful, not always stacking up all the offenses committed against me and demanding vindication for those offenses. No, in mercy, she shows patience, gentleness, kindness, and forbearance toward the sins and failings of others. My friend, one of the surest indications of the degree to which we comprehend the gospel the mercy of God shown to us in Christ is how we respond when sinned against. When someone's sins and failings impose on us, how do we respond? Or how about this? When you find yourself in power over someone who is in your debt, what do you do? Do you lord it over them? Are you heavy handed? Are you severe? Are you always ready to impose the most exacting penalties of justice, the full penalty of law? Do you have a heart that is shut up to compassion, a heart that's parsimonious and illiberal with mercy? Or in kindness, do you forbear? In mercy, do you dispense grace and kindness and mercy and allowance? Oh, friend, it's okay. That's all right. Don't, don't think on it again. It's covered in love. Listen, Christ has been so gracious to me and so merciful. How could I hold this against you? Oh, He's forgiven me beyond my knowledge of it. How could I be anything less than forbearing with the sins of others in my own life? Mercy is forbearing with the sins and failings of others. It does not pursue vindication, retaliation, or vengeance, but rather patiently and gently forbears with the offender. And again, this kind of forbearance is beautifully illustrated again in the life of the Lord Jesus. You see how forbearing He is with the failings of others, the sins of those around Him. You might just think of how disappointing the disciples were, how many times they failed Him. How many times they disappointed him, even in the upper room, on the eve of his death, still don't have it together, still are so worldly-minded and so carnal in their thinking. You might think of Peter as he's about to deny the Lord and to betray him. What's Jesus doing? He's praying for him, and he's already preparing for his restoration for them to be reconciled despite the sin and despite the offense. He's not stacking up a meticulous record of Peter's wrongs. He's not thinking, well, you know, when I rise from the dead, I'll set things to right and I'll put those disciples in their place. No, he's praying for Peter, eagerly looking to the time when he can restore Peter and reassure Peter. How unlike us, who are so ready to keep a record of the wrongs committed against us, so ready 
to nurse and nurture self-pity? I don't know about you, it's one of the things I'm best at, having pity on self, developing narratives where I'm always the victim, the noble one who's bearing up under all the sins and offenses of others. I didn't tell Rex this. I was so blessed, brother, by your sermon, Philippians 2, a couple weeks ago. Rex was talking about not being marked by selfish ambition or conceit. And at some point, an illustration or something like that, Rex, I think you talked about uh, how we are so good at weighing all the things we've done for other people and don't see what others have done for us. We don't think about the interests of others. And just that week, I'd been thinking, there were two distinct instances where I'd done that very thing. And I was nursing self-pity. I was enumerating all the offenses against myself and all the ways in which I had been discounted and put down. Not thinking at all about the ways in which I had hurt other people, the ways in which I've imposed on others. There are husbands and wives who keep notes on their phone or files on their spouses. They keep a long record of everyday kinds of offenses committed against them. There are people who have journals full of all these ways in which people have offended them and hurt them. I wonder if we all turned in our phones today. How many texts we would recover in our most intimate circle of friends who we feel we can do this sort of thing with, where we're just documenting all the offenses committed against us. Can you believe what she did to me today? Can you believe what he said? Yeah, right? Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that some kind of slander against me and my worth and my awesomeness? My friend, aren't you glad that God doesn't keep such notes on us? He says in Jeremiah 31, I will remember their lawless deeds no more. He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He's not keeping meticulous records of every offense I've committed against them. He's forbearing. How many times, how many times have we sinned against him? How many times have our sins imposed on him? Did you hear there was a a subtle line I heard in Ian Burley's prayer at the last prayer meeting we had. He said, Lord, help us to see our sins as the nails that pierced him. Isn't that good? Was Jesus inconvenienced by my sin? And yet he forbears. He's gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. How sweet is mercy. We sing it in the Psalms, Psalm 23, perverse and foolish, oft I've strayed. And yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulders gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. Oh, may God help us to be marked by that same kind of mercy and forbearance and grace in our dealings with others. May we too as the Lord's disciples in mercy forbear with the sins and failings of the people around us. Now point number three. Number one was mercy involves benevolence toward helpless and needy people. Number two, mercy involves loving forbearance with the sins and failings of others. Point number three, mercy involves forgiveness toward all who persecute, hurt, and offend us. Mercy involves forgiveness toward all who persecute, hurt, and offend us. Turn over just a few pages, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, we will eventually come to this text, God willing, maybe 2029 or something like that. But I want us to look at it now because it is so relevant to this issue of mercy and what we're considering here. 
Many of you may know verses 15 through 20 is that famous passage on what we often refer to as church discipline, dealing with sin within the community of the church, the community of the Lord's disciples. But after that section, we have a section on forgiveness, Matthew 18, verse 21. Please follow along as I read. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And the commentators suggest that Peter thought he was being really liberal there. As many as seven times? Lord, I'm ready to do that. Jesus said to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him but a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. What's the moral of the story? Those who do not forgive others will not be forgiven. They who do not show mercy will not be shown mercy. The implication is whether one gives or withholds full and free forgiveness is a direct reflection of whether or not one understands and believes the gospel. My friend, I can tell you how much you make of the grace and mercy of God by how ready you are to forgive those who sin against you. Brothers and sisters, simply put, unforgiveness is a non-option for Christians. It's not whether or not I will forgive. It's a non-option to be unforgiving Toward others. In the most sobering way, this text teaches us that if you refuse forgiveness to those who sit against you, you are not a Christian, and you have no right to hope that God will forgive you. I listen to an older, wiser man than I, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who says, if I am not merciful, there is only one explanation. I have never understood the grace and the mercy of God. I am outside of Christ. I am yet in my sins, and I am unforgiven. Friends, this isn't kind of an isolated kind of text. 
well, this is kind of more extreme than other parts of the Bible. It's softened out by other things we get in other passages. That's not so. The record is universally clear on the matter of forgiveness in the teaching of Jesus. We see it in the Lord's Prayer itself. Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I want to treat others in precisely the way I hope God will treat me. And so I ask you, if God dealt with your sins against Him, the way you deal with the sins of others against you, how would you fare? How would you fare if God treated others in their sins, your sins against Him, as you deal with the sins committed against you? Paul instructs us in Ephesians 4.32 to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13 says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. What is he teaching us? God's forgiveness is meant to be a kind of paradigm for our forgiveness. As he forgives freely and lavishly and fully, so we are to forgive those who sin against us. Jesus prayed from the cross for the very ones who put him there. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, as stones were raining upon his broken body, you know what his last words were? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He doesn't pray imprecations in that moment or pronounce anathemas and cursings over his persecutors and his abusers. No, Lord, forgive them. Lord, please, please look on them in mercy. Don't hold this sin against them. Do you know what? William Tyndale prayed as he's being burned at the stake in Brussels in 1536 at the command of Henry VIII. You know what his last words were reported to be? Oh Lord, open the King of England's eyes. The very king who put him there was burning him for translating and printing Bibles and sending them back into the motherland. He doesn't say, Lord, avenge me. Lord, rain down justice on the king. Lord, in your wrath and your fury, bring an end to all evildoers. And he says, Lord, save him. Save him. In mercy, yes, God, forgive him. Open his eyes. Do not hold this sin against him. One of the functions of godly mercy is the free and full extension of forgiveness to all those who persecute us, who oppress us, and sin against us. I was just reminded, even as I read that sentence, you remember there was this young man who, I think it was in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, walked into a historically black church, I think killed nine people. And I think if I have it right, there was a gathering a couple of days later in that church, and reporters were kind of goading on those people trying to get them to talk about what they hope will be done to this young man who had committed this racial crime. You know what they talked about? They talked about how they prayed for his forgiveness. They prayed for his pardon. They prayed for his salvation. They prayed that he would come to know the Lord. And people kind of mocked them for that. Well, don't you know what that attitude will convey? Don't you know what that will do if you show that kind of mercy towards somebody, if you extend that kind of forgiveness? That kind of thing was seen as quaint. 
I could only hope, I expect, that that was the reflection of an attitude that had been deeply shaped by the mercy and grace and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those people comprehended mercy and were eager to show it. Now, let's be clear. Forgiveness does not always require the restoration of relationship or the restoration of trust. You always need to say this. Moreover, forgiveness may not always eliminate necessary consequences for sin. And I recognize trust is always earned. But friends, forgiveness is never earned. It's never earned. If it were earned, it would cease to be forgiveness. It would be penance. It would be an eye for an eye. No, forgiveness is always given freely and fully as God in Christ has forgiven us. As soon as we demand payment and a kind of transaction with the sinner against us, we're engaging in that very thing that Jean Valjean was so used to, an eye for an eye, which can only turn the heart into stone. The measure with which we show mercy reveals the measure to which we've experienced mercy. Brothers and sisters, the abundant mercy we have been shown by holy God in His lavish and gracious forgiveness of our sins, it must move us and impel us to show mercy to others by extending free and full pardon for all sins and offenses committed against us. The merciful man forgives fully and freely. Let me just encourage you. As mercy has its way with us, I think we come to love dispensing this kind of mercy to others. We become to have such joy in showing forgiveness. It becomes an opportunity to express our gratitude to God for the forgiveness and mercy that we've been shown. We're eager to do it. We're eager to extend grace, eager to extend forgiveness. I think I've told the story before of, of when I was a teenager, said some really snotty and rotten thing to an older man in my church. It was a really embarrassing episode for me. And I went back to him that night uh, to confess my sin to him. I just felt so terrible. I thought, I've blown it with this guy. The relationship is over. And I, I told him, I, I said this. I can't believe I said that. You probably think I'm a this, that, and the other. And would you forgive me? He said one word, freely. I was expecting his resentment. I was expecting the withdrawal of love and affection and relationship. But here was a man so in tune and in touch with his own sinfulness and the mercy and forgiveness he had received from God so freely in Christ, he was eager to forgive me and eager to be restored. Well, friends, I hope you become sort of in love with that, kind of addicted to that idea. I'm eager to dispense grace, eager to dispense forgiveness, to show the same kind of love and mercy and compassion that my Savior has shown for me. And I'll tell you, this is, this is most fun and exciting when you're dealing with a non-Christian who sinned against you. You want an opportunity to preach the gospel. Forgive lost people in your life who offend you. Hey, please don't think on it again. I, I completely forgive you. And it's easy for me to do that. I'm eager to do that. Do you know why? You have a wide open door to speak about the God who does not hold our lawless deeds against us but who nailed them to the tree that we might be forgiven. Point number four, the final point, and then we'll transition to the table. Mercy involves benevolence toward helpless and needy people. Mercy involves loving forbearance with the sins and failings of others. Mercy involves forgiveness toward all those who persecute, hurt, and offend us. 
Fourthly and finally, mercy involves compassion toward a lost and perishing world. Mercy involves compassion toward a lost and perishing world. If you're still in Matthew, please turn to Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9, toward the end of the chapter. Let's read together verses 35 through 38. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We learn here that one of the functions of mercy is to look upon lost and perishing humanity and to implore God to pour out his grace that he would save. Mercy toward the poor and the needy and the afflicted has not done its work within us if it does not move us to pray and to plead with God and to make what efforts we can to see them saved from their sins and delivered from the wrath to come. Mercy does involve benevolence, practical benevolence toward the afflicted, toward the oppressed, toward those who are in distress. But it won't do much good to feed a man's belly here and now if he will starve forever for eternity in hell. We as Christians want to relieve all human suffering, all human suffering, especially suffering in an everlasting torment apart from God. There is no greater expression of mercy than to point people to Christ, to introduce them to the Lord Jesus who can save them from all their sins. I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about what you think of me. I love you. I care for you. And I want to talk to you about something that's important. Would you hear me out? That's the climax of mercy, to share the Savior with someone else, the one who could truly deliver them from sin and from everlasting punishment. There's been a lot in the news lately about drag queen story hour, You've seen that on the news, on social media? There was, a couple of weeks ago, the Grammy Awards, quite a decadent display of immorality and sin by those folks gathered together in Los Angeles. You maybe watch some of the videos on the news or on social media or on YouTube of what Drag Queen Story Hour is like. Or maybe you want some of what occurred at the Grammys. As you look on those gatherings of people, what occurs in your heart? I think that if you experienced some modicum of revulsion, I think I could even say disgust, Oh, that might be a holy impulse. 
But is that all you feel? Is it simply that God's righteous standards are being violated? Is there any room in your heart for mercy? Do you, like Jesus, look upon the crowds? See them scattered, dispirited and distressed, like sheep having no shepherd. He wasn't looking on a bunch of Christians when he was moved with compassion. He was looking on lost and perishing humanity. And he's moved to mercy. There were prostitutes among them. There were idolaters among them. There were self-righteous people among them. There were sinfully hardened and wicked people among those crowds. But Jesus, looking on them, had compassion. He wasn't just repulsed, and his heart recoils within him. Oh, look at these wicked people. Oh, well, may justice be done upon them. Now he's moved to mercy. I'm very aware that if God saw me for a moment outside the covering of the atoning blood and righteousness of Jesus, he would only be repulsed. But I received mercy. I received compassion. I've received grace and forgiveness to a heart that allows that reality to have its way within them. They then look upon a lost and perishing world and they implore God, show mercy. Who knows, this man who's misleading these children and acting in so flagrantly a wicked way, who knows what his life's been like? Who knows who his dad was or what his dad did to him? Who knows what access Satan has had to this poor fellow? Who knows what he will be and what he will become if he perishes in a sinful state? Oh, God, forgive him. God, please, please show mercy. Please, upon these crowds, we implore you, we pray to you, we ask you, show me ways that I can speak and I can work, that I might introduce Christ to such people. People marked by such mercy. They're eager to gather in environments like the one we'll enjoy this evening as missionaries share about what they're doing to reach the lost and we'll beg God, we'll ask God, we'll implore Him, Lord of the harvest, oh, send out laborers, bring forgiveness and salvation to many. There's more that should be said. I'll choose to say it at the table in a moment. For now, let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you have been in our experience, as we sung in the song, you have been slow to anger when we go astray. For all of our betrayals, you've not repaid us according to our deeds. You've been pleased to pour out your wrath upon your own dear Son in our place. It was our sin that held him there. It was our sin in those nails, that crown of thorns crashed upon his head. It was our sin that pierced the Lord of glory. But Lord, it's by those very wounds that we are now healed. 
We're forgiven. We're saved through what you in love and mercy have done for us and your Son. Lord, we pray that this would overwhelm our hearts and transform us into people that are truly merciful. To what every sorrowful person we see, that we would be forbearing to those who sin against us, that we would be eager and ready to forgive all offenses, that we would have pity and mercy on a lost and perishing world. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, as we contemplate.